Thanks for being here with us this evening. My name is Kevin Conover. I'm broadcasting down here in Southern California. You're listening to Educate for Life Radio on KPraise, 1210 AM. We're also on FM 106.1 in North County. And of course, we're all over the internet on podcasts and um, all the different venues there are for uh, talking about it. Uh, I have some interesting news. Just recently, a poll was done by um, USA Today, and they they were taking a poll uh, right here in March on what is the most interesting religious museum in the nation. So they had all kinds of different options, 18 different nominees that included the Museum of the Bible um, in Washington, D.C., the Billy Graham Library in Charlotte, North Carolina, the National Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia, and a bunch of other well-known museums. And what came out as number one and number two were the Ark Encounter in Kentucky and the Creation Museum, also in Kentucky. So if you have not been to those, uh, you probably want to check them out. Um, this is the second time they've been nominated as the top two uh, religious museums in the nation, and uh, pretty pretty cool. Um, so we are talking about creation and evolution tonight, and um, and so it's interesting. About 40% of Americans believe in specifically a biblical creation. That is, a uh, as it's described in Genesis, six days of creation. We we also have people who believe that God used evolution in order to um, create everybody, uh, meaning that's theistic evolution, the idea that God used evolution. And then you have somewhere around 20% of people who say it was a purely uh, materialistic process um, of biological evolution, a Darwinian evolution. And so uh, that's been pretty stable for quite a while now. And my guests this evening are, we're gonna talk about this, we're gonna talk about the problems with evolutionary theory my guests today are Dr. Owen Brown. He's Professor Emeritus of Biomedical Sciences at the University of Missouri. He has a PhD in microbiology from the University of Oklahoma. He's also a toxicologist certified by the American Board of Toxicology. He's written more than 200 published articles. He's, uh, that includes 60 published reviews of books and um, films by the American Association of Science. He's written four books, including Miracles, which you can get for free, um, which uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. Uh, miracles specifically dealing with the fact that all of reality, all of nature, all of creation is a miracle. And then um, he's also directed research uh, in biology, chemistry, uh, the medical uses of oxygen in the Space Sciences Research Center, the John Dalton Cardi Cardiovascular Research, and the University of Missouri Medical School. He's nominated for the Distinguished Alumnus Award, University of Oklahoma. So I share all that so that you know that um, the information you're getting is not from some just some guy we pulled off the street. Also with us is Dr. David Hollander. He's professor of mechanical and aerospace engineering at the University of Texas at Arlington. He has a PhD from MIT and serves extensively as a consultant. He teaches courses in engineering and has won awards for teaching excellence. And I'm really grateful to have both these guys on the program. They recently published, um, uh, they recently published in the journal uh, Progress in Biophysics and Molecular Biology. Uh, they published two papers. One is Neo-Darwinism Must Mutate to Survive, and the other one is Biological Evolution Requires an Emergent Self-Organizing Principle. And uh, I've got a quick question here for you, uh, Dr. Hollander, as we get started here, which is, uh, you know, a lot of people, they're listening, and, and we know that uh, Dr. Brown is a microbiologist, but you're an engineer, um, and and some people might say, what does that have to do with 
with uh, you know origins and evolution. Why? What reason would we have to, you know, what what is your involvement in this and your interest in this? A lot of people don't recognize that engineering has any involvement regarding biological evolution. Can you share with us about that? Well, I think my contribution to this is from the standpoint of the mathematics. Uh, I don't know anything about biology. Uh, in fact, the, the only courses I ever had in chemistry and biology were back as undergraduate many, many years ago. But uh, the engineering aspect of it has to do with uh, the statistical nature of performance, uh, how things are designed and built, and the organization. I mean, if you are constructing um, an airplane, you've got to have an organized approach to which parts come first. You can't start out with the engines because there's nothing to mount them. You don't have wings to mount them on. You can't start out with the seats because there's no fuselage to put them in. And so from the standpoint of engineering, I would look at that as a conditional probability of things that have to occur in an organized sequence, uh, which, which just can't randomly happen. I mean, I guess it could randomly happen, but the problem is you'd continually have to be starting all over again until you randomly got to the first things that had to be done before anything else could do. And so just like in engineering, um, uh, there's, there's statistics and probabilities associated with events happening. And, and that's kind of more or less where I came into play on this. And, trying to understand the, the biology from a layman's standpoint. Very interesting. Um, along those same lines, uh, Dr. Hollander, what, what is it that caused you to even take an interest in this? Um, how did you decide to you know, connect with Dr. Brown and, and say, oh, okay, well, I'm an engineer here, but let's start crunching numbers on the probability of whether evolution could take place when we look at the cell and so forth. How did that, how did that process start? Um, Actually, uh, uh, Dr. Brown and I have known each other for many years, and uh, we just, from the standpoint of, um, uh, well, we did, well, we've known each other for many years, and a lot of times when he will come into, a, a, or he will encounter a problem that he needs some mathematics, he's reached out to me to to, to provide that support for the different things that he was working on. And uh, so it was, um, I, it, it wasn't so much, I don't know that I would have even known what questions to ask, but from the standpoint of, but he, he knew how to ask me questions and then say mathematically, I mean, how would you handle this or deal with this? Oh, that's very interesting. Um, would you say that in the, scientists, in, in the scientific um, realm, in the different sciences, is there often a disconnect between the different disciplines and the, the people that are doing the research where um, somebody like with your background in the math would really be able to solve issues that a biologist might not otherwise solve? I mean, that relationship is really interesting that you've developed with one another to, to assist each other in your research. Is that something that happens frequently or are the dif disciplines often very separated? Well, this happens all the time. In fact, um, I think what I've observed over the years that happens is that sometimes to solve a problem, you got to you got to have somebody that can think outside the box and take a, out of the box and think, take a fresh look 
at uh, of how to work things, and they've figured out how to do that with a totally different application. But it's like, why not uh, apply that to here? And and uh, this has happened in in several uh, cases uh, or, or several problems that Olin and I have worked on. Um, that I would have never even thought to go there without him asking me questions about it. And then I'm thinking, well, from an engineering standpoint, um, here's here's the way I would do that. Here's the software and the mathematics I would apply uh, that, that I use in aerospace and mechanical engineering. Um, but I would have never even thought to apply those things to those kind of problems. And sometimes people that are working those a, a certain area they don't have that out of the box experience with the tools that they that are available because they've never needed to use them before. And so, uh, but you you nailed it that, that a lot of times an out of the box, uh, totally separate background can be a, a, provide a tremendous help to solving problems that it's an approach that nobody would have ever thought to take that's in that field. That's that's very interesting. So do you think that um, because I, I find it really interesting that as far as I understand it and correct me if I'm wrong, but a large percentage of academia like research scientists and so forth, they actually embrace evolutionary theory. Um, and I don't know what the actual numbers are from a percentage standpoint. But when we look at the general pop, the general population in America, you have 40 percent of Americans who say, I believe in a in, that God created us. He did not use evolution. Um, in your experience, and I know this is kind of anecdotal, but, um, and Dr. Brown, I'll ask you this question. In your experience, is what is the percentage of scientists, would you say, that, that um, embrace evolutionary theory as opposed to those who embrace something like intelligent design or creation? Uh, Dr. Brown? I, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't have any data on, on that. So it would be probably just anybody's guess. A lot of times I, I've known colleagues, I've worked with colleagues, sometimes we discuss our religion generally apart from our science. Um, so I, I, I don't know many people that I've worked with as scientists that we really had in-depth con conversations about what our beliefs were. I know that some of those people, some of my friends, just don't want to get involved, especially when you're beginning your career. There, there are lots of anecdotal experiences that people have, and there are some that are quite well known, where people are, in a sense, blackballed because mm. of their spiritual connections or belief. And uh, there is a, a group of, of individuals who I don't say they're atheists. They they announce themselves that that's where they're coming from. They're, and it, it's not possible to have a useful conversation mm. with some of those mature atheists. But my interest with my colleagues where I share this comes generally from a sharing of faith and then a discussion of whether our worldview is affected by what we believe mm. about the Bible in terms of whether we believe it literally, or I have friends that are theistic evolutionists. So, so there's all kinds of people in science fields, just like there is everywhere else with yes. respect to this subject. Yeah. 
So, I, I mean, the focus of the two uh, papers that we're talking about this evening um, that were published, and uh, for those of you who are who are listening, uh, these publish these these papers um, are published by uh, the journal Progress in Biophysics and Molecular Biology. And in case you're wondering, you know, what kind of a journal this is, um, you know, some of the editors include Tom Bloomdale, he's a PhD from the University of Cambridge, Delphine Dean. PhD from Clemson University Department of Bioengineering, Dennis Noble, PhD uh, from the University of Oxford. So this is no lightweight journal. Uh, this is uh, rigorous, you know, research and people looking at questions about, uh, um, you know, theories and so forth. So, so um, in regards to that, Dr. Brown, what I wanted to ask you was, uh, it's it's interesting that you were able to publish these papers in such a reputable journal. Uh, when, like you said, there are people that don't want to get involved because they have been blacklisted in the sense that uh, they've been told, hey, uh, you know, if this is going to be your position, we're not interested in having you on our staff or we're not interested in publishing your papers. I had a guy on my um, on my show not too long ago who was fired because he published a, a particular perspective on uh, Mark Armitage on the largest uh, triceratops horn ever found. It had soft tissue in it. He published it uh, for one of the universities here in California. He was fired. He won a lawsuit for wrongful termination. But um, I'm curious, uh, you know, is it just because you're so well credentialed that that uh, people were like, hey, let's let's go and uh, and we'll publish this paper, even though you're really questioning um, uh, an established paradigm, the evolutionary paradigm is very very much uh, kind of you know, this is status quo. If you don't, if you don't line up here, you know, you're considered, you know, kind of off kilter. Uh, what do you have to say about how that was published in this, in this journal? Well, beginning about 10 years ago, there was a start of what I might call a sea change. Mm. It hasn't become a flood yet, but there are many reputable scientists who have strong doubts or concerns uh, about whether evolution is, is, is advancing as other science fields do. Mm. The study of physics, for example, is open to questioning. It's open largely to new ideas or to controversies. Now, I, I think you have a problem if you, if you try to put God in the equation there as well. But with respect to the evolution, there has been an attempt from the spiritual side to do theistic evolution, which you referred to. That has made some inroads, and there are institutes today who are funded and who do speeches and promote the idea that it, there's no not a, a that evolution can be consistent. It's how God did it. Mm -hmm. um, speaking personally. I signed this uh, statement by the Creation Institute as uh, Discovery, Discovery Institute, right? Discovery, yes. Yes. Uh, I was number 65. I looked back and saw where my name was placed. And there's been over a thousand people pub uh, signed the statement, which is a very modest statement. It just says we need more research and it's not all settled. Yeah. Um, but I could look back at when I was a when I was first starting teaching, uh, I had the opportunity to 
serve on a panel first at our university where uh, Dr. Morris, you may have heard the word, he, he's a, one of the early people who was making speeches about, yeah. about this subject. Philip, Philip Morris, right? Yes, I think yeah. so. And so I didn't, I wasn't a panelist, but I was on the panel who was supposed to ask questions. And, and that was the beginning. Uh, I remember speaking at churches and some other places during that period. And I really got a, a surprise to me at that point uh, from colleagues who who feel, felt very emotional about this, that, that I was, you know, that I was out of bounds by even suggesting this. Yeah. But I, I fortunately, as far as I know, I was never denied promotion. I was never denied anything. I, I didn't suffer those slings and arrows. But personally, uh, and, and getting to the questions you asked about the publication, I would never have sent this paper. I just wouldn't have put the effort to send it to science or nature. I know it would have been turned down. Mm -hmm. I, I know that it would have. Uh, I, I knew a little bit about Dennis Noble, and I knew that he was a scientist, and I knew that he had been bold enough to say that there, there are things wrong that need to be made right. And that's where I'm coming from. Uh, I'm not saying that all of the ideas about evolution uh, are scientifically provably wrong. But I am saying that we need much more than something called survival of the fittest. And this is where I brought in Dr. Uh, my friend uh, Hollander to, to look at this question about what is the what abilities does the concept survival of the fittest? What does it really have? What tools does it bring to be able to, to advance the idea of a speciation event? And that approaches the idea of probability. Is it probable? Is it possible? Is it so improbable as to not be considered? And so that's how we got started on this. After previously, we had done some work uh, on um, the idea of what information can you get from a blood pressure monitor, which is not related to evolution. But it, the, the field of biology and his expertise merged there. He can he can look at a an oscilloscope and see a, a graphic representation of a heartbeat and do miraculous things in terms of interpreting. I know that's amazing. So so that's actually one of the questions I was going to ask you was, you know, when you started doing the research on these sorts of things and you started doing this, give us an example of the kind of question you bumped into that you were like, whoa, I'm going to have to reach out to somebody. And you were like, hey, maybe David will be able to answer this question. Give us an example of, of the kind of thing that you needed help with. I needed help with probabilities. Uh, I knew how to do simple probabilities. You know, like if you if you have X number of marbles and certain percent of them are a certain color and you reach in and it's random, it's it's you, you draw one out. What's the probability? Sure. But then that's fairly simple. But the question really becomes important with respect to evolution. We have to talk a little bit about this idea of survival of the fittest. If we're going to, if we're going to have something change, you know, some evolutionists will say, evolution, biological evolution is simple. It just means change. Yeah. 
But of course, you've probably heard it. Yeah, change over time. Yeah. Yeah. So it gets a little more complex. And perhaps I could say it this way. I needed help with the idea if, if a process of speciation takes several steps, and I can't think of any speciation difference change that doesn't require multiple steps. For example, what good's half a wing? Think about that. If you have don't have a wing and you're trying to, by species change, get something with a wing, it's irreducibly complex. Think about that term. A, a mouse trap is irreducibly complex. It has a little piece of wood. It has a spring. It has a bale that comes down over the mouse's throat. It has a, a tongue that latches, and you have to have cheese. Now, if you put a piece of wood out there and left it for a long time, you wouldn't catch any mice. The, the mousetrap is irreducibly complex. If, if you had the whole mousetrap, but you didn't set it, or you set it, but you didn't put any cheese on it, it wouldn't, you, you don't catch half a mouse with a half of a mousetrap. Hmm. So this is where the idea of, we're asking survival of the fittest. And if you look at, Darwin's book, it was the origin of species by means of natural selection. Now, let me take a moment here because this is important, I think, for your audience. He used the word natural selection. And his good friend, Spencer, who was competing with him at the time and trying to get his book out first, but that's another story. But they were friends. And Spencer said, I wish you hadn't used that word, natural selection. That the, A lot of folks out there are religious, and they're going to say, if something was selected, there had to be a selector. And that, that follows along today. We have people who, who talk about design. You, you can't do that because it implies a designer. Yeah. Automatically categorized as the religious nut. Uh, if you want to put, put it that way. Well, it's funny because I was reading an article and, and um, I was reading that Francis Crick actually would stumble on uh, design and then try to take it out of the vocabulary. And, he, and he, he actually made a statement saying, we have to constantly remind ourselves that nothing we see in nature is designed. And it's funny because he said, you have to constantly remind yourself. And uh, uh, because it's just natural to say, like you said, like that was designed. And so um, you have to really kind of, you know, <laughs> alter your vocab so that you, you, you don't start to sound like you're for the other side, right? Correct. And, and, and focusing on getting Dr. Hollander, my friend David, involved here with the math and, and the probabilities, which was the part of this question, we have to understand that survival of the fittest was what um, Spencer wanted Darwin to use. Hmm. Survival of the fittest. Now think about that. That in, in logic is called a, a, a tautism. It, it's circular reasoning. Reasoning. What survives the fittest? What is most fit? That which survives. Tells you nothing. It, it just swaps words. And that is so fundamental and integral to the thinking of biologists that they accept it and promote it as an explanation when it's it's full of sound and fury, but it means nothing, signifies nothing. So 
what I wanted to do was to ask Dr. Hollander, can you tell us what the probability calculations show if we give survival of the fittest this job of functioning as an editor? There, there's no plan, no purpose. It's all random. But then you have to select. And if, if something selects the one that's going to be on the way to a new species among all the other ones that are useless, you have two situations when you have a, a multi-step process and any reasonable change for speciation is not going to happen in one step. Um, let me tell you this. I think I have too much time on this, but Dr. Gould, you, you know who he was as the evolutionist. And he was thrown out of the polite evolutionary society, published a book where he said there are there has to be gaps. There's big jumps between species and we can't find the intermediates. And we've looked and they're not there in the fossils. Doesn't make sense. So he was bold enough to say, what if a dinosaur laid an egg and it hatched and a bird flew away? Because birds are supposed to be coming from dinosaurs. And he did that not in jest, but you, the evolutionists, you know, didn't like that idea. But yeah. in, in essence, you, you have to have big jumps. And so if you're looking at the if you're looking at the fossil record. Yes. Yeah. It was, it was called the, the, the happy monster theory or, or something like that. Yeah. But what we need to introduce here to your audience for, for Dr. Hollander to say his parts about the, 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 the probabilities, which is the essence of what we're getting at here, is the idea that if you have a, a multi-step process, let's choose one that we know, something called the Krebs cycle. All aerobic life forms, whether you're a germ or whether you're an elephant or whether you're a human, you need energy. And that energy comes from the metabolism, the changes in chemistry of the food you eat, and energy that's present in the substance of that chemistry, that the food, is converted into something like a battery. It's a, a chemical called ATP, adenosine triphosphate. This particular chemical is used by all life forms, and it's charged up in the process of metabolism involving this thing called the Krebs cycle, which has eight enzymes. It's a cycle process, and it has it's irreducibly complex. Having one of those enzymes is no better than having none. Having seven of them is no better than having none because it has to be complete. So the challenge for Dr. Hollander was to calculate what would be the probability if we give survival of the fittest its due capability, that is to be able to select something that is better. If it has eight steps to be good, then it has to work as an editor along the way to save each step. If, if I got one, two, three, or four, or five, or so, both seven of them, it's no better than none. But survival of the fittest has to recognize that and has to be able to save it. So his challenge was, what if you could save it? What if each time you get one step up the ladder, you, can, you don't have to start all over? 
what that probability looked like compared to the real probability, giving survival of the fittest its capabilities. That is, it can only recognize when it is truly better. Mm. So that was the challenge that I was presenting. And how can you translate the biology language into a language that a, a mechanical engineer can appreciate in terms of saying, okay, these are the calculations, and he can tell you what the results were. So, so quick question here. So, um, you're being generous in the, in even in in what you're asking Dr. Hollander to do. You're you're saying, look it, let's just pretend that it can save it. But in real biological evolution, according to Darwin's theory, if it's not immediately useful, by its definition, natural selection has to eliminate whatever is not useful. Right? Is that correct? Uh, with some limitations, yes. Okay, but but generally speaking, if you have half a wing, that organism is actually going to be less fit than having no wing, right? Yes, yes. So, so. so, so therefore, I mean, he's going to be dragging around half a wing trying to get his food versus the guy that's like, no, I'm just going right to my food and I don't, I don't have to deal with this half a wing. So survival of the fittest says, bye-bye, you know, guy with half a wing um, until you've got a full two wings you're not you're not a, you're not better than I am and so therefore you're not going to survive better than I will um but you you've given the generosity of saying okay let's say you can save it even though it's not actually to a point where it gives any kind of uh survival advantage um we're going to calculate the probability you know giving it the benefit of the doubt is that correct yes and we're going to use this particular process where there are it's more complex but there are at least eight different proteins that all have to be there. Okay. So Dr. Dr. Hollander, speak to that. So uh, like you said, you can answer that. So you get this problem and and you start working on it. First of all, I'm I'm curious, were you, when you first got these problems, were you kind of like, wow, this is, this is going to be interesting. I've, I've never had to deal with this kind of stuff, calculating numbers with biology. Um, Was it kind of, did it kind of catch you off guard or were you kind of like, oh no, this is, this is Olin, you know, he's always doing stuff like this. <laughs> well, well, you pretty much nailed it right there with that comment. Um, in fact, every, every, every problem that he's uh, approached me with, I, I always correct him. I tell him, you're talking to the wrong person. I, I'm, I'm not the one that can answer these questions. But, but in terms of the probability, the way it actually it started is he says, you know, there's a lot of the... Um, there's a lot of the people that believe in evolution uh, from a probability standpoint is they say, look, you're, you're a human, you're here, uh, or there's an elephant, it, it exists. So the problem, there must be a probability that it can, then it can happen. And, um, uh, and he said, how do we address that? And I said, well, I'm going to have to learn a little bit more about the sequence of things that must go about. But we had to get one thing straight right off the bat, that that probability calculations are prior to some event happening. You you don't look at something that's already happened and then, then say, well... If it's already happened, then there must be, you know, it's obviously, uh, uh, it can happen. It's it's very probable because it did happen. And so we had to kind of get that resolved. That The probabilities are always in terms of what can happen in the future, not what has happened. 
Um, the, the main thing that I um, once, and, and yeah, I guess you have to consider the fact that it took me about, it must have taken me almost six months, maybe longer to even understand what he's asking me or explaining to me in terms of these enzymes and mutations and and how that uh, you you have to you have to have this sequence of enzymes that's uninterrupted you cannot have a a lethal mutation that causes you to uh, uh, if you have a lethal mutation within the sequence to get your eight or 12 or 15 however many of them you're gonna you're gonna have um, do you have to start all over or not start all over or can you just continue on um, with this concept of survival of the fittest. And so uh, basically, I did have an understanding of conditional probabilities. What happens if you have, if you, you have to get a, a new enzyme uh, and it can't be the previous enzyme, it has to be one of them that's available that you need to progress. Um, that is one case, and we can't. What is the probability of getting all eight of them, or twelve of them, however many you're going to require? And then the, the other cases where you can have a lethal mutation, don't and and you it, you don't have to start all over, but you still have to get all of the enzymes. And um, you know these are pretty straightforward calculations uh, of probability, um, and and so. My, my challenge was just understanding uh, what's required. And I never, I still don't understand what it takes to produce a species, but I've, I've taken his, because I don't understand the biology, but I do. And if he says, if you got to have this many in the sequence and it can't be interrupted with a, with a lethal one, what's the probability of that happening? But if it can be interrupted by as many as necessary uh, lethal mutations, uh, but you still have to get all of them. What's the probability of that happening? And, you know, if he's going to lay it out that, that in that simple of a explanation, it was just a matter of doing the math. So were you, were you surprised by the results of your calculations and so forth, or were they what you expected they would be? I, I, um, uh, David, what, what went out along the path here? Was it, was it something that you were, um, you know, I mean, you're obviously learning a ton about biology, but when it comes to the possibility of evolution actually taking place, biological evolution taking place, um, were you surprised by the results of the calculations? Well, I wasn't surprised because I'd never even thought about it. I mean, okay. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, you know, being a, a strong believer and a Christian, uh, you know, I've just always... Uh, uh, believe that, you know, God created man in his image and it didn't happen and it just evolved over a period of time about some random process, e even if there were millions and millions of years for it to happen. But I'd never thought about the actual numbers associated with the probability of, of, it, of it happening and, and those sequence happening. And then, and then I told, you know, we're, we're getting numbers like, uh, uh, 10 to the 10 to the minus 50th, the probability of that happening. Well, or 10 to the minus 100. And I said, but Olin, I, I said, that's it just to create one of these cycles. I said, 
isn't it true that with all of the millions of species that are out there and all of the different cycles that have to be completed to ever create a species, you, you, you got to take those numbers of probability of just getting one cycle and you've got to, you, you have to multiply all those together, which, which is ridiculous. I mean, there, there's no way that you could uh, ever uh, believe that something like that could happen. Um, but it's a number. And, and of course, the argument is, well, if you wait long enough, it could happen. And uh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. I, and in fact, the first thing I thought about when he came up with this problem is explaining the thought process on this. I'm thinking, yeah, and, and all of us have heard this. If you had a warehouse that had everything in it, all the composites, all of the electric motors, all of the transistors, all the diodes, all of the the rubber materials and everything, and a, and, and a storm hits that warehouse, and the result is a 747. I mean, it, it's kind of like, who would believe that that would ever happen? Now, I don't, I don't even know how I'd begin to calculate that probability. <laughs> everybody, uh, would, everybody would say it was a miracle. And, yeah, that's exactly you know, <laughs> I mean, exactly. all newspapers would publish miracle, miracle, right? <laughs> and yet today people uh, say, oh, no, no, it just, you know, when it has to do with biological organisms, it can happen. Um, so, you know, versus, you know, an inanimate airplane, right? Um, so Dr. Brown, along that, those, that same case, I mean, um, you're looking at these numbers that David's coming up with. What's going through your mind as you're looking at these numbers? Well, fortunately, I had read some work that other scientists had, had done before. Uh, and some of these calculations become absurd. And even that word was used. It had been ignored by biologists because uh, George Wall was a Nobel Prize winner. I, I heard him speak once. Uh, he was a very brilliant man. He, he did not... Uh, wasn't concerned about the low probability or the absurd probabilities. He said that, I can't quote it exactly. He talked about things that are improbable given enough opportunities, enough time become probable. And the probable becomes a virtual certainty. And he used the word miracles. He said, time performs the miracle. I, I bet he wished he could have taken that word miracle back. Yeah. And actually, probabilistically, probabil, probab, in probability theory, I believe David can correct me, but I believe it's correct that if something does happen, then its probability is one after the fact, if you're looking at it. If you looked at something like um, the lottery, Everybody knows about the lottery. Most of us wouldn't go out of our way to buy a ticket. If, someone, if we were given a ticket, we would not keep it. The chances of winning, you know, are so remote, we wouldn't bother with it. But we all know that people win. There, there are people win the lottery. And then they go bankrupt. Yeah, no, that's true. That's <laughs> not true. But there are also people who've won more than one lottery. Yeah. Whoa, really? I didn't know that. Yes, it has happened. So, but evolution tells us there are at least 8 million species identified. 
they think that more than 99% of the species that ever existed no longer exist. So there may have been more than a million, a billion species total since the beginning. Hmm. Now, what we're saying is, okay, suppose you got lucky. You got one species. But are you going to tell me that you believe that the mechanism that produced that one species can allow you to win the lottery a billion times? Uh, somewhere, you lose me. So these big numbers um, are one of the things that we use as our rationale for looking at this subject rationally to yeah. see could it happen. Uh, you know, um, I want to return for just a quick moment here to this idea of consensus. We talked about the power that biologists have in terms of putting down other ideas. They don't engage on the probability. They just say we're here. That proves it. And at the same time, they use the same idea that politicians use. Consensus is valid for politics. Mm. The way I get something done is I convince a lot of people. So the idea of consensus is legitimate, but consensus means nothing in science. It doesn't matter how many scientists you have who say, I believe this. David would join me in saying, show me the numbers, show me the data, show me the theory, show me the empirical evidence. Um, let me bring this home in, in a way that may mean something to some of your audience. Everybody knows about Michael Crichton. You probably saw his book, Jurassic Park, and you know about his other work. Well, Michael was a fully trained doctor. He never practiced medicine, but he went through medical school, internships, and then he got involved with writing and with, with movies. But Michael Crichton said, I want to read this. Consensus is evoked only in situations where the science is not solid enough. Let's be clear. The work of science has nothing whatever to do with consensus. Consensus is the business of politics. Oh, we are faced every day with this problem that we are told if you, you, you either believe this or you're stupid or you're crazy or you're worse, you're evil. Mm. And I don't, want to pro, pro, I don't want to promote the scientist who, who said that. I will say his name, Richard Dawkins. He's in England. He, he's made a, rig, a really large career and lots of money as an atheist, and he, I'm not saying he's an atheist, he proudly says I'm an atheist. And he said, if you meet someone who doesn't believe in biology, and believe in, in evolutionary biology, you can be sure that he's either, either insane, or he's ignorant, or he's stupid, or he is evil, but I don't want to go there. That's yeah. what we're faced with. When, when we try to say, let's, let's look at the science. Let's don't solve all of the problems by saying God did it. But let's say where we need to do better as scientists 
Yeah, and I really, I really like that about your papers is that what you're saying is, is, hey, let's do more rigorous research here. Um, you know, evolution is a paradigm that hasn't gained ground forever. I mean, there's been no new developments. There's been no new advances that have demonstrated that, you know, uh, undirected mutations and, and natural selection are, are beyond that are drivers of, of um, like you're saying, speciation or upwards evolutionary progress. Where's the evidence? It's been a long time and nothing's happening. And, um, you know, I wanted to ask you because you said you said about 10 years ago there was a sea change and you said it hasn't become a flood yet. But I think it's fantastic, e even the fact that you are able to publish these two papers that are critical of evolution. I mean, a, a while ago, um, I I'm not sure that would even have been possible. And yet here it is in a very reputable journal that's been, a, been around since 1950. Um, you've published these two two papers, and um, and I believe you said you you even are working on a couple more papers. Um, so so can you speak to that as far as um, this sea change that's taking place? Is this just because so many people like yourselves are actually uh, you know pointing out that the emperor has no clothes, and it's it's becoming more and more well known these issues, and people are becoming more accepting of them? Um, what is it that's causing this sea change? Well, there's a few people that have been very bold. Um, uh, David Belinsky uh, is a physicist. You may have seen some of his podcasts, some of his work. Uh, he, he's a very bright, knowledgeable person in a very difficult field. And when asked about evolution, how much of it is true? What percentage of evolutionary theory is true? And he sat back in his own inevitable way and said, zero percent. Wow, that's a real bold statement. <laughs> so people like that, a few people who, who cannot be challenged in the same, because he's not, he doesn't go to church as far as I know, or didn't. So uh, there are people who, who, who are known to be religious. And if, 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 if you come out against evolution specifically in a scientific way people scurry around to see if you've published anything or if you belong to a church or if you've made any comments along that line and then they say oh see you, you, you talked about us getting this published it's been interesting to see the response to it the the, the, the response is black and white you get some people who who will challenges and say oh i understand they're they're religious and that's mm. what they said um one comment said uh well looks like we let one slip through now that says a lot looks like we said one slip through yeah that's very telling um and you know they're they're kind of um you know showing their cards the fact of the matter is they're not interested in um, in dealing with the evidence and the arguments, they're they're more interested in in maintaining a, a paradigm that they, for really honestly, for religious reasons, they want to they want to hold up um, rather than actually going, hey, let's look at the actual science, let's wrestle with these problems and see what we can do with them. Um, there's not a lot of ground uh, being gained, uh, so. So, but there are a lot of people that you do feel um, are supportive of your your arguments and that really 
because not everybody's that way. Not everybody is is hostile towards this these sort of publications. Like you said, um, I think you referenced dissentfromdarwin.org. Um, the the site it has uh, over a thousand PhD scientists that have signed on saying uh, we we doubt the ability of Darwinian evolution to explain the complexity of life all over the earth. And uh, we feel that more research needs to be done. And we don't feel that that this should be um, people should be, uh, you know, given the scarlet letter if they decide to question evolution. Right. Well, yes. Uh, a friend of mine, I call him a friend, told me personally. I've forgotten what his H index is. An H index is an indication of how much your publications have been cited. Is a figure, and it, he has one that's off the charts. It, it's huge. He's made a big impact. He, he works in nanoscience. He can he can create molecules specifically designed in his laboratory in certain ways. He's an organic chemist. He, he's brilliant. Oh, doctor, uh, that's uh, Doctor James Tor, isn't it? Yes. Oh, I mean, you, yeah. you know the person. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's uh, yeah. And and he says, "I'm not in the Academy of Sciences." And I should be, just based on the impact of my work, the number of people who cited my work, the number of things that have occurred because of my work. And he said, finally, one of my friends who is in the academy said, I personally know why. It's because you're a Christian. Mm. And that was his testimony to me personally, and he said it openly in other places. So it does exist. Um, it's the idea, wasn't it, Lord Acton, maybe I cited this earlier, said power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, uh, corrupts absolutely. Mm. Uh, if somebody has all power, I would want him to be God, because I would want him to be all beneficent. Yeah. But I don't know any politicians who have that much power who are also benevolent that I would trust with everything in my life and in my future. So yeah. huh yeah or the editors of scientific journals, right? <laughs> yeah. So so uh uh David a question for you. So um what does the future hold here you know as you and um Dr. Brown have been working together are you are you guys going to continue to work on publishing papers and is there a particular angle that you're going you're going after specifically? I mean, you've covered a lot of ground already in the two papers that you've published. Um, what's next on your list of um, you know trying to make other scientists aware of, trying to make them think, trying to challenge uh, the established paradigm? What what's next um, in the future for you guys as a as a partnership, uh, David? Well, honestly, I'm, I'm I'll just wait for the next challenge uh, from Olin. <laughs> And uh, and I never know where it's coming from, and I, I and so far every one of them have been totally different. And um, I do have one comment about probability that that I wanted to say that I didn't, um, and and this may be something that that needs to be pursued because if you if you tell me the probability of of one chance of something happening, one chance in ten or one chance in a hundred, or one chance in a million, what you're, you're really saying, there is a chance it could happen. Mm. And so 
you know, in in our formulation of everything that, that the mathematics that was done, I kept coming back to Olin and saying, we have to start with something uh, that that would initiate the process, and and really what it had to do was the probability that that you could have a specification event from a mutation of a cell. And my question to him, I says, uh, for me to tell you what the probability of a, of a whole bunch of these things happening in sequence, I got to know the probability that the first one could ever happen in the first place. And, and um, my question to him was, has that ever been observed? That, that and, he said, not to my knowledge. I said, so so, it, so we're going to start and we're going to do a, a calculation of probability starting with something that no, we don't even know. Nobody's ever observed it. And, and we don't even know for a fact that it could occur. And most likely it could never occur. But we're going to assume that it did so we can do the rest of the calculations. And that's, I think, very important to bring out here because anybody that's saying, well, okay, you say that the chance is one in 10 to the minus 50 that something can happen. So you're really saying it could happen. And, and I need to clarify that, that that assumes that something that can happen that we don't, we've never observed. Mm. Uh, and, and yeah. And did I say that correct, Olin? Yeah, very, very so. I'm, I'm reminded quickly of, of a little, I don't know actors and actresses today, but there was a movie and this fella is interested in this girl. And he, he, she, he cannot get her interested in him. And no, he Have you seen that? I know what you're talking about. You're talking about, uh, you're talking about Dumb and Dumber. With, yeah, uh, yes, yeah. yeah. You want to tell the rest of the story? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, anyway, the, the, the two of them are there and he's he's pushing her, you know. He finally says, well, is, is there a chance? <laughs> you know, is, is there a chance for me? And she says, well, yes. And he says, what kind of a chance? And she says, one in a million. And he just goes berserk. He says, oh, wonderful. You know, that's, I'm happy <laughs> to take a chance in one in a million. Well, here, here we're talking about chances like 10 to the minus 400. Yeah. I don't even know how to describe that. Uh, 10 to the minus 80, uh, excuse me, 10 to the plus 80 is supposedly the calculated number of particles in the universe. Mm. Uh, so. Uh, yeah. I, and I just, you know, it's funny because um, I hope people are paying attention. I, and I, I hope that there are people out there that listen to this and go, you know what, I need to reconsider, you know, what I believe and what I think, because um, I got into a discussion with a biologist on Facebook and, and he said to me, you're no biologist, you really don't have any authority to be able to say anything about, you know, I was talking about abiogenesis, you know, life from no life. And, and I said to him, you're right. I said, you're right. I'm not a biologist. You're the biologist. And I said, but here, look at these numbers. And I just threw up, you know, a basic argument for for the chance of, you know, amino acids coming together and forming proteins and ultimately forming cell. And, and I said, you're the biologist, you tell me, is this, do these numbers look accurate? And he responded back, yeah, your numbers look accurate. And I said, 
I said, then how in the world can you possibly think that life could come into existence without God? And he never wrote me back. And uh, so <laughs> I consider that I won. But, but, but I just feel like, you know, what do you have to do to convince somebody that, gosh, come on, guys. I mean, uh, can't we just have an honest discussion and really just look at the evidence and come to good conclusions? I don't feel like it's that difficult. Um, and yet it seems so difficult, you know? And so um, I guess it's just more of what you guys are doing, more of just continually presenting the evidence and showing people, look at this is well done research. This is respectable research by respectable scientists who know their stuff. Um, you know, take a minute and, and really make an honest assessment of, of the evidence and, um, you know, deal with it rather than running away from it or pretending or, or putting your head in the sand. Um, uh, but I guess that, you know, that's the spiritual aspect of what we're dealing with. So, well, yes, if I may say to me, I don't approach my Christian friends with this and ask them what they believe and try to tell them they have to believe Genesis literally in order to be saved. Uh, but I say your worldview, if you think about it, and Socrates said, you know, the unexamined life is not worth living. Mm. Uh, there is some truth to that. One should examine what you believe and why you believe it. It may not affect the salvation of yourself, but it could affect the salvation of your children or your grandchildren or someone that you know. Uh, it's also important in another context. I think it creates great joy in life to give God the credit for the beauty of the world and the sky around us. The alternative is to say that it all happened by chance. To me, that's not very satisfying. It certainly doesn't bring joy into my life. So if for no other reason, if you're saved, if you know you are, and you're doing things for the Lord in the world, accept the joy that comes for being able to look at the night sky or the trees in your, or the face of your grandchild. Mm. The most miraculous thing in the universe is not the starry sky. It is not even the human. It is the fact that we are made to have eternal fellowship with God. Mm. That is the greatest miracle. Well, I think that's a wonderful way to um, wrap things up here. So absolutely, I, I couldn't agree more. And um, I just want to thank you, uh, Dr. Brown and Dr. Hollander, uh, for your time this evening. It's been a great uh, pleasure having you on the program. Well, thank you. And thank, thank you, you for getting a commitment from Dr. Hollander to continue to work with me. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's recorded now. It's recorded. <laughs> Well, um, for those of you listening, um, I, you know, you can obviously watch recordings of the show. You can uh, forward this podcast to your friends and check it out. And then I just want to share uh, Dr. Brown's um, email. It is dr.dr.olen.brown at gmail.com. He will give you a free copy of his book, Miracles, which describes uh, the incredible, miraculous uh, creation all around us. And uh, 
it, from a scientific perspective, explains how miraculous what we what we get to experience is. If you want to get a hold of Dr. Hollander, H-U-L-L-E-N-D-E-R at U-T-A dot E-D-U. H-U-L-L-E-N-D-E-R at U-T-A dot E-D-U. Um, he's available to do probability calculations for you. I'm just kidding, Dr. <laughs> if he wants to, if he's not too busy. Both these guys have a lot going on. And um, um, next week, uh, we do have a really interesting show, um, Archaeological Biblical Tours at the British Museum with Jill Baker. Uh, bumped into a tour guide for uh, the British Museum. She's over in uh, Britain, and she gives archaeological biblical tours. I'm really excited to have her on the program. We also have the Scientific Evidence for the Age of the Earth with Dr. Russ Humphreys coming up in November. Um, we And uh, several other really amazing uh, interviews uh, that I think uh, you'll be blessed by. And I just want to thank our guests for being here this evening. And uh, for those listening in, I hope you enjoyed the program. We've got so much more good stuff for, for you. And, um, you know, there's troubling times around us, but keep your eyes fixed on God. The Bible tells us whatever is good, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, think on these things. We can trust God through all the difficult circumstances we're going through. And we can, uh, like Dr. Brown said, uh, have joy in acknowledging the gifts that God has given us through his creation and uh, through his son, Jesus Christ. I hope you have a nice evening. We will see you next time.